This is WOWDLP Tacoma Park. Welcome to the Artist Experience Radio Show on 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. And today we're focusing on the painter John Singer Sargent, the subject of an exhibition at the National Gallery of Art here in Washington, D.C., which just went up and will be on view till January 2nd, 2023, Sargent and Spain. Well, there are seven major forms of art, painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, music, cinema, and theater. And seeing this exhibit of John Singer Sargent in Spain inspires me. It reminds me of the supremacy of painting as a high art form. I know I've touched on this in some previous shows, but what is painting as a fine art and why do we care? For the last 60 years or so, painters have dropped out everything. No horses in the clouds, no subject, no narrative, no agenda, no depictions of the unconscious, and made the case for a new kind of painting, pure abstraction. In many of our programs, we've set out to show that abstract painting is exciting, refreshing, and challenging. Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Joan Mitchell, But what happens after that? We are left with a completely inflated art market, and the painters have been left without a purpose. Somehow in the last 50 years, the act of painting has been supplanted with first a rebellion, a paring down to what is essential, paint on canvas, and then to an idea. Frank Stella was famous for saying, I love Velasquez but I could never paint like Velasquez, so I paint stripes. The more I have lived with that statement, the more important it is to me. Because even now, there are still some people who are born to paint. I wish I knew more people like that, but they're around. But this show of John Singer Sargent, who was born 150 years ago, seems to address that as much as anyone painting now And maybe he will serve to inspire some budding painters who would be as thrilled as I am seeing some of his work, especially his watercolors. What this guy did with 15 colors, some water, paper, and a brush, and by this I mean to be inspired, not to copy Sargent, but to paint with as much passion and dedication as he did. You said some people are born to paint. You know, I'm reading now a memoir by the Danish writer Tova Ditlifsen, and she says of herself that she was miserable when she wasn't writing. All the time, words were forming into sentences in her mind or into rhythmic patterns. And I think the same must be true for visual artists. Almost every one of those who at some point in their youth have spent let's say, 10,000 hours, 
I mean, you can't do that. You can't paint 10,000 hours unless you're getting an emotional reinforcement, unless you're thrilled by what you're doing and by what you dream of doing as you learn more. Anyone who does that, they're deep into it, into true art, an experience that philosophers have tried for hundreds of years to describe, and that task will never be completed. Uh, but that's not enough. Every artist also has to face the requirement of putting together an audience for their work, finding a subject and style that teaches their audience how to enter into that same thrilling dreamscape, or whatever you call it, the art experience. So Sargent gives us a good example for exploring the art experience. Here's the thing, Sargent at his peak was one of the most famous and successful artists in the world, but by the end of his life he was considered passé. <clears throat> Art students weren't going to the museums to copy his work. His obituary in the London Times praised him as the perfect example of an era that had passed and wasn't ever coming back. And yet, here we are, a hundred years later, both you and I think that he does have something to give us today. It'll be interesting for us to try and put that into words. Yeah. I'm thinking that there are many painters who are known for their groundbreaking work that cuts through what has previously been accepted as art. Basically, the avant-garde, the march of innovation, art that's considered, above all, original, which can be mistaken for the idea that anything that a young artist does has to come out of his limited brain, that being influenced means being unoriginal. That's like a writer never reading or a musician never listening to music. But because writers use words and they have to say something that makes sense and musicians can't pick up an instrument off the floor and just make noise. Well, that's probably been tried. But painting is different. A painter can want to express their self with not much to express or want to play, just delighted in some effects of paint or have a relaxing time in an art class, and that's fine. But once you've thrilled to a great painting, you have something to aspire to. And as Frank Stella says, that's why he paints stripes. He's had an 80-year career of innovation that sometimes surprises us and sometimes disappoints us. But what an artist. And on our show, we try to investigate what this all means, what its purpose is, how it opens parts of our brain to enrich our life experience. Those artists, the Impressionists, Seurat, Monet, Cezanne, sort of post-impressionist, yeah. <laughs> um, the Cubists, Picasso, Duchamp, the modernists like Arthur Dove, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Kandinsky, and Jackson Pollock, Frank Stella, Andy Warhol. Well, there are too many to even try to mention, but they broke new ground in painting, and I wonder if they've exhausted the possibilities with paint and canvas, and now where do we go? And then there are other equally great painters, Giotto, Vermeer, Rembrandt, Titian, Van Gogh, who are just so damn talented. And of course, there were many who fall into both categories that they've just produced beautiful work, like Degas, Matisse, Angre. And there were great artists who weren't trying to blow people's minds by challenging the conventional ideas, but whose work spans centuries of art. Yeah, you know, it's been said that uh, Mozart, he, he wasn't the revolutionary. He wasn't the avant-garde of his day. He just brought the music of the day to a sublime perfection. Okay, maybe we're not claiming that Sargent is as good as Mozart, but we are making a claim that he was a true artist. Well, even though Sargent was an American... He lived most of his life in Europe and was trained rigorously early in the old academic way with plaster casts and painting techniques that were developed by da Vinci. He was also trained to see composition in terms of 
light and dark. He learned perspective, or he never could have drawn those paintings. He wasn't much for long vistas, but much more for close-up suggestions of nature, knowing just how much to suggest, and the play of light and shadow on architecture and water and people. (laughs) Speaking of water, do you want to dive right into the exhibition? Or should we give a little biographical historical background? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So John Singer Sargent was born in 1856 in Florence, Italy. How perfect. He was American. His parents were American. His father, a surgeon. His mother, an amateur artist. Both from old, important families in the U.S., whatever that means, living there in Florence, trying to find some metal piece after their daughter died, and they stayed there on a small inheritance. His mother taught John to observe the world around him. She recognized his artistic ability and made sure that he had good training in painting from the time he was 13. He was American, but he grew up in Europe, studied art in Paris, and settled permanently in London after he got a little too infamous in Paris. He spoke perfect French. He was a true cosmopolitan, famous, but an outsider wherever he went. Therefore, a perfect traveler and documentarian. Well, he developed as a master portraitist and genre painter. His teachers were Carolus Duran and Leon Bonnet. Carolus Duran taught him to paint with the first brushstroke, to be bold, to be general, and later be selective about the details and to study the work of the masters, not the Renaissance Italians, but the Spaniards, Velasquez, 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 who set the stage for composition, and Goya, and that's the start of Sargent's Spanish adventures. In fact, in this show, there are works by both Velasquez and Goya, as well as Sargent's copies. Carolus Duran instructed Sargent never to underdraw, although he did draw the basic perspective lines, and especially with the architecture, the columns, and the walls. He would begin with sweeping brushstrokes and fill in the details beginning with the middle tones and moving outward from there, gradually filling in his light and dark tones. He was young, talented, and worked like a demon. He wasn't trying to shake up art, but simply to be the very best in recording what he saw. He traveled always with his paints and brushes, and his work was so fresh. The light is as clear now as the day he did them. The economy of brushstrokes. Many of these works are thrilling. He believed in paint. He believed in painting. He believed in creating light. Not the same light as the Impressionists, but with his own simple palette. Sargent's watercolor palette was comprised of alizarin carmine, brown pink, burnt sienna, cadmium yellow pale, chrome yellow, cobalt blue, gambage, lamp black, rose matter, ultramarine blue, van dyke brown, scarlet vermilion, deep vermilion, viridian, and an opaque white. Oh, gambage, that's that beautiful golden color. I've never heard of that color. But wait till you guys get to the third room in this exhibition. It's thrilling. And that must be the color. It must be. (laughs) (laughs) His training was in Europe and in returning to Spain many times over three decades. And also looking at the European landscape, his career overlapped with the great artists of nature, Winslow Homer and portraiture, Thomas Eakins. Although there's no evidence that these artists knew each other, their similarities are obvious. Also, Eakins and Sargent were pioneers in photography, and they used the camera for their paintings. William Merritt Chase, and I hate to say it, Andrew and Jamie Wyeth, and the great Edward Hopper, Whistler, Child Hassam, He had to have had a strong influence on these guys, if only by bringing his European background and conventions into America. Ah, 
you don't like the Wyeths? Might be interesting someday to explore why. Well, I can tell you that right now. That Andrew Wyeth found a subject that expresses isolation and despair, and he stuck to it his whole life. It's true. His watercolors were in a way masterful, but they, they're also really repetitive, and I feel manipulated. I feel pulled into a world that I resist with all my being. Yeah, interesting. And I agree with you. Um, that's my experience of Wyeth, and it's my experience sometimes of movies. A lot of movies I don't like. It's like they miss the central, essential thing in art, desire and celebration. Mm, I like that. Imagine Wyeth with anything like celebration (laughs) in his vocabulary. (laughs) So Sargent became the portrait painter for the aristocracy, and he became the landscape painter for the future. Well, he started building a career, and he vaulted to the top in portraits. That was a, I mean, that's a terrific career, uh, a source of money and celebrity. All the richest people of Europe wanted him, just like, uh, you know, their counterparts or descendants uh, wanted Andy Warhol. Uh, and Warhol said about Sargent that he made his subjects taller, slimmer, and more elegant. Well, he did. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a dumb, deliberately deadpan quote from Andy Warhol. Sargent's watercolors are just as beautiful as his portraits. They're actually better, aren't they? Watercolors are so hard to do. And I say, eat your heart out, Andy, because by the time Sargent did his final watercolors, he had been doing them for more than 50 years, and he had gotten to the point that nothing was hard. That's the skill, his vision, his expertise in handling the paint. It was all there at his fingertips. That's what an artist can hope for at the end of his life, that his ability ascended to the heavens. These watercolors from his time in Spain are just part of his life's work. But we'll try to put some of them out on our Artist Experience Facebook page, and please check that out. Yeah. The paintings in this exhibition were produced in seven trips. Seven? Right. Uh, To Spain. I guess he had to get out of town, get out of society, go into the countryside, into the sun, and paint what he desired, what he loved. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD Tacoma Radio. We're talking today about John Singer Sargent and the exhibit at the National Gallery of Art, Sargent and Spain. The show is up until January 2nd. The exhibition takes place in the main floor galleries of the West Wing of the National Gallery. As always, when you go into that gallery from the Central Hall, it is dark and your eyes have to get accustomed. There are works by Goya, El Greco, Velasquez, and works from their workshops, as well as Sargent's studies of their works. Spain was, at that time, just beginning to be known as a place to study, and Sargent registered as a copyist at the Prado. Right. So the opening room of this exhibition contains the work he did on his first trip. This was his final phase of being a student sent to Spain by his teacher to study Velasquez. He registered, as you said, at the Museo del Prado as a copyist, and he copied paintings by Goya, Velasquez, and El Greco. And some of these are in the exhibition, as you just said. They, I mean, they're interesting. I'm reminded of the other show at the National Gallery, The Double. These are doubles of the original. Um, but you can sure tell them from the originals. He's at that, it's an advanced stage of training where he's determined to learn how the masters did what they did, but he's also painting out of himself so that the result is a hybrid. Yep, he's discovering the secrets of those masterworks. Not the stories or the details, but the compositions, the forms, the light. And on that trip, he started painting flamenco dancers and musicians. They were performing in the dark spaces or outside at night. What did you, what did you think of those, Sheila? Well, he was transfixed with the Roma life 
and the dancers and worked hard to catch them in motion. It's really great to see these drawings. They're sort of sketches, the kind we call gesture drawing, one after the other, working to catch the gesture of the arm, the hand. Then he took them back to his studio to make a complete painting. He was young and he was learning. Also in the show are some wall text comments on the Roma as a people, that they were considered a lesser society. The curators at the National Gallery have realized that there's a new sensitivity, especially to what we call gypsies, that needs to be addressed. So they are also educating the public about this marginalized society. And there's a portrait of a Roma woman, good-looking, but not romantic, very straightforward with the text. And the hope that a young Roma girl will see herself in this painting and be inspired, as Michelle Obama has said of her portrait at the Portrait Gallery. Yeah. You know, of course, he recognized the potential of this subject for his career, you know, dancers and musicians in the night. And I think the paintings were successful back in Paris. But he really was very... um, Respectful isn't quite the right word. There was some kind of a communion. He didn't caricature the Roma as they were commonly viewed by European society, gypsies with all the stereotypes. Maybe as a permanent outsider, he viewed them with empathy. Uh, For me, though, the first two rooms, they're, they're part of the story of Sargent, but the day doesn't really spring to life for me until we get to the third room, where we see his paintings and watercolors of the bright sun-washed plazas and fountains. They seem really new and extraordinary. There's nobody else who paints like this. What did you think? Well, yes, it's true. But there's Turner the brilliant painter of weather, and he preceded uh, Sargent and, uh, you know, his paintings of the light and the sea. And he's 80 years older than Sargent, but he's also in that long line of artists that are standing on each other's shoulders and continue. Right. Um, Mark Twain wrote, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. This quote is the first line of the catalog for the exhibition and serves pretty well, I'd say, as the overall theme. Most of our listeners enjoy traveling, I suppose, or at least enjoy their memories of travels. And at the heart of this exhibition is a travelogue. Super high production quality. Uh, Sargent's seven trips to Spain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, I'm aware that calling Sargent's art a travelogue risks sending it back to kitsch. You know, it risks demoting it in the hierarchy of genres to the level of travel illustration. Yeah, that's the, that would be the wrong way to take this. What we're saying in this show, what we claim is a result of the postmodern revolution in art is that there is no longer any hierarchy of genres. We are free to look into art, and if we experience what Wallace Stevens calls the essential poem at the center of things. If, if we experience the essential poem at the center of things, we know we're looking at art. So, look, let me read one stanza of Wallace Stevens' poem, where he's trying to do the impossible, to put into words what art is. You know, this is what Sheila was talking about at the beginning of the episode here when she talked about Frank Stella, and all Stella could say is, that's why I paint stripes. Stevens, being, you know, really good with words, is taking on the challenge of describing the art experience. And he gives us this image of what lies beneath appearance and is revealed by art. It's the essential poem. There's a a poem in the fountain of the plaza, in the scene of the basket weavers, in the shade of the olive trees. This is not just making a phrase, a colorful phrase. It's 
one, it's his shot, one of his best shots in a lifetime of trying to describe what art is. So here's the stanza that develops this idea. And in this reading, there's the poem is like, he says, the essential poem. That's the thing that's behind appearances. And then there's a phrase, lesser poems, which refers to actual individual poems and paintings. So here it goes, stanza two. We do not prove the existence of the poem. It is something seen and known in lesser poems. It is the huge high harmony that sounds a little and a little suddenly by means of a separate sense. It is and it is not and therefore is. In the instant of speech, the breadth of an accelerando moves, captives the being, widens, and was there. Now I know modern poetry is, is very concise and so it's, it's hard to totally get this, but the feeling of being captured, or as he says, captive, then widened, is often described by people as being carried, a fe feeling of floating away in the music, or in the case of Sargent's painting of a fountain, being transported to that sunlit courtyard. Well, maybe not into the real courtyard, but into a dream of that space or a memory of that space with its searing heat and cool shadows, which you don't actually, of course, feel with your skin, but with your imagination. Well, that, um, that wonderful phrase by means of a separate sense, that is really what's at the heart of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something that doesn't ever get said or said enough is that painters paint what they want to paint. It's not, I mean, painters paint subjects and they paint narratives and blah, blah, blah. But Sargent he went into the quarries or the mountains or he camped by the river so he could paint water or rocks. It, yeah. Does this make sense? I, yeah, it, it's not I for their so. meaning. It's for the act of painting them. Yeah, painters are not communicating ideas. I, well, there is conceptual art. Um, but for the most part, and, and you know, you could also make the point that all art is conceptual art, but... Really, painters are thrilled or compelled to paint this image because the image is thrilling. All, these, all the other attributes that you use to distinguish one artist from another, um, you know, the degree of accuracy or the shock value or style or how they deal with light or the message of spirituality, whatever it is, that's not the essence. It's more intuitive. And, you know, boy, that brings up something in our last show where I made the point that Rauschenberg worked in a deliberate counterintuitive process where he eliminated all traces of his individuality, personality, hopes and dreams, etc. But you said that the beauty of his work was undeniable, and that that beauty was due to design, and design is intuitive. So that paradox is, is, is well, it's still alive. So let's see. We, so we spoke about the essence of art, the role of intuition, versus what distinguishes Sargent's art. And one thing that distinguishes his art is the light. I... I think the wall text in this show said that Sargent studied the Impressionists and used their discoveries in the production of light in his paintings. But um, Fairfield Porter, a painter, said that the Impressionist's light was interpreted light, while 
Sergeant's Light was the one thing he understood and could give you his feeling for. You know, the light of the Impressionists, the light of the Post-Impressionists, the light of Sargent. They're all truthful and they're all different. I, I mean, does that make sense? Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yes, it does. Okay. It really does. <laughs> well, Sargent met Monet during his student years at the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and their friendship developed over the years. During the 1880s, Sargent visited Monet's home at Giverny outside of Paris, visited there many times. And even though he was developing his painting at the same time as the Impressionists and was a friend of Monet, he painted light differently. The light is different in Spain. It's brighter. The shadows are sharper. They're better expressed with more limited palette than in France, where the light is softer. His watercolors are lit by his use of warm and cool colors, which is also what the Impressionists did, but they're more, they're, they're like warm and cool. They're very accented. And then he'll put some warm in the shadows to brighten up the shadows and some cool in the light passages to sort of tone down the light. He used subtle medium-toned washes with bold and cold brush strokes, and he saved out the paper for the lights. Sometimes he used a mask, you know, something that, like, we use could use rubber cement now that, mm. that masks out the part of the paper that you want to keep white, and then you peel that off and you have white. But he also used a white gouache for the highlights so he could get something even lighter. And he could light up a dark floor with one stroke of light gold. Okay, nice. The stroke of gold. That's good. You know, I mean, the difference... Um, in light, it is interesting, you know, we're interested in it, and, and you could yourself compare the light in these paintings with the light of the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists just by taking a short walk uh, to another gallery in the, in the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, you're listening to WOWD Tacoma Park. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and we're talking today about John Singer Sargent and Spain. The new exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., the show is up until January 2nd. We're going to talk, take a short break, and when we return, we'll continue with our talk about Sargent. We will listen to John Williams on guitar, playing Albanus Astoria.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today by my husband, Peter Blake. Today we're talking about Sargent and Spain, the new exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. The show is up until January 2nd. Uh, Sheila, can you talk a bit about uh, perspective and shadow in the architectural drawings and um, shadow and light under the trees and in the stable and the paintings of the workers and the horses and stables and such? Sure. Well, that's where Sargent's training really kicks in. Perspective, which is a device to put things into space, is only a little bit intuitive. And you can see that in early American paintings, especially where uh, artists didn't understand perspective. And, uh, you know, it's charming to see to see everything facing in strange directions and roofs not quite uh, going back into space. Mm-hmm. But that isn't what Sargent wanted. But the complications of this kind of architecture require a knowledge of how to draw in perspective. It's difficult, and he's got it under his belt. And the horses, too, they require a certain knowledge of horse anatomy. Even with this kind of sketchy rendering, you have to really know. If you look at, at sort of paintings of horses by people that are not skilled in the anatomy of horses, <laughs> yeah. you don't know what you're looking at. In fact, there's an interesting uh, painting. Is that Velasquez in the of a of a rider and a horse, and yeah, the horse has be, sort be. of looks more like a big sausage with tiny little legs. Yeah. Yep, I remember that. So in the first room. In the first room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, all of that is interesting. That you know, there's also a longing in the paintings, a longing and a desire for the sort of freedom that, you know, being among people, living a traditional life in the sunlight close to the animals, crops and stone, uh, that's there. I, I also remembered this quote uh, from the architect Mario Rossi, he said, the great interests of man, air and light, the joy of having a body, the voluptuousness of looking. Hmm. Only men, huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the exhibition makes very little reference to Sargent's main career, how he became the most sought-after painter of society portraits, But it's something I thought about myself, and I wondered and speculated about what life was like for him as a person, his desires. Well, late in his career, Sargent painted a number of male nudes. For the most part, these works were not exhibited during his lifetime. There were several studies of Thomas McKellar, who was an elevator operator in a Boston hotel. They were executed in preparation for future murals that Uh, that Sargent was planning for the Boston Library. McKellar's strong muscular body body is beautifully rendered. The artist's delineation of the stone wall behind him with what comes across his feathered wings and a glowing blue-white light give the impression that McKellar is somewhere between a mortal and a god. The painting was not widely known until it was purchased by the Boston Museum of Fine Arts in 1986. That's really current. Mm -hmm. So Sargent carefully kept hidden his works of sensual male nudes so as not to compromise his successful position as a society painter. Well, boys and girls, the floodgates are open. Let's talk. Sargent's male nudes and the study of McKellar in particular have drawn a great deal of academic interest recently as indicating his attraction to men and as well as his relationship to Henry James. Finally, art historians are permitted to look thoroughly at an artist's work. According to Jacques-Emile Blanche, 
a French artist and friend whose sergeant once painted, the artist's sexual preferences were notorious in Paris and in Venice, positively scandalous. He was a frenzied bugger. It's worth noting that Blanche was a notorious gossip, so these words might be taken a little bit with a grain of salt. We don't know. But God, I hope this ridiculous misinterpretation of what's so obvious and necessary to seeing these paintings is finally unmasked and the blindfolds are off. And the more, as a society, we can come out of the closet, the more we can embrace so many artists' work in their entirety. It's about time. Art historians, help yourselves. (laughs) You know, there's a fantastic painting uh, uh, in the in the section on Majorca, uh, paintings from Majorca, uh, there's a thatched shelter by the seaside with the gorgeous blue sea in the background. And a fisherman is lounging in the shade, leaning up against a pole, gazing directly back at you. Uh, this is a powerful image of desire and celebration. Mm-hmm. Another great American portrait artist was Thomas Eakins. I can't find any evidence that he and Sargent actually met or knew each other, but the parallels of their artistic careers are beyond coincidence. So Eakins was born 12 years before Sargent, and he lived most of his life in Philadelphia. But Sargent only lived a small part of his life in America, so it's quite possible that their paths didn't cross, but you would think at some point they would see each other's work. Thomas Eakins observed his father, who was a weaver, and he observed him at work. And by the time he was 12, he demonstrated skill in precise line drawing and perspective and the use of a grid to lay out a careful design, which skills he later applied to his art. So like Sargent, he showed his gifts as an artist at this young age. Egan studied studied art in Europe from 1866 to 1870, and he attended the atelier of Leon Bonnard, a realist painter who emphasized an anatomical preciseness, a method adopted by Egan's. And a bit later, Bonnard became one of Sargent's teachers. Egan's letters to home reveal a passion for realism that included the study of the figure. Egan's traveled to Spain for six months and developed an admiration for the realism of artists such as Diego Velazquez and Giuseppe Ribera. In Seville, Sevilla, in 1869, he painted Carmelita Raquinha. It's a portrait of a seven-year-old gypsy dancer, more freely and colorfully painted than his Paris studies. There are so many parallels with Egan's and Sargent. Egan's traveled to Spain and attempted his first large oil painting, A Street Saint in Sevilla, and he first dealt with the complications of a scene observed outside of his studio, as did Sargent in his studies for his gypsy dancer about 12 years later. Eakins succeeded in absorbing the techniques and methods of French and Spanish masters, and he began to formulate his artistic vision, which he demonstrated in his first major painting when he returned to America. During his study abroad, Eakins, like Sargent, was exposed to the use of photography by the French realists. The, The use of photography, and it still maybe, was frowned upon, as a shortcut by traditionalists, he and Sargent both used photography in their paintings. And Egan's photographed new children as well. At the Philadelphia Academy, Egan's was fired from his teaching position for taking liberties with students and in modern parlance, making them uncomfortable. Egan's left a trove of seductive pictures of nude men, Sargent left watercolors of nude men in seductive poses, but I haven't seen any photographs of those that particular subject, although he used photographs a great deal. They were both great artists of the same caliber. 
great and 12 years apart. <laughs> That's an interesting little side trip. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> totally off the subject of the sketches of Spain. But, but we like our freedom. So, after exploring Spain, Italy, Greece, and Great Britain, Sargent began to explore the United States for subjects. And boy, what he found was perfect for him. He hiked the Rockies, he slept in a tent, and the tent, with the light coming through, was a beautiful subject in itself. You should see those watercolors of the mm -hmm. tent. Mm -hmm. And Florida, the Everglades, my very favorite paintings of Sargent's are his watercolors of Florida. They're miraculous. They're not in this show. Actually, they're at the Worcester Art Museum. There's one that's 13 inches by 20 inches, a watercolor of mucky alligators slightly slivering in the swamp. Mm. He had to have been close. And the light on the the scales, what do you call those things? Of yeah, the I scales of scales, the alligators? Yeah. And the brown mud behind that serves to highlight and define the scales. And the spare shadows crawling across their backs with the trees behind and the suggestion of water through the trees. First of all, it's alive and it's masterful. And when would you ever experience this the way you can when you're looking at this? And by this time, Sargent was 60 and he had everything he had to know at his fingertips. So he was ready for a different light, different foliage, different men lolling on the beach. And a wild, dark pool of palm fronds, fronds with the light coming through. And it's so living and complicated and also simple at the same time. And sometimes he combines the white gouache with a golden green that has an opacity that stops your eye from getting too far back. This is the artist at the height of his powers. He's taking a vacation from his portraits and the wildness and also his treasures that that these are has had to mean so much to him that he could achieve this for no one but himself. There are some loosely done paintings of men, dark skin, bathing, lolling on the beach. Sargent said, of all things, get abroad, see the sunlight and everything that has to be seen. So you must have been somewhat taken aback by the last room. Uh, the images of crucifixes and the virgin with the seven arrows in her heart and halos surrounding her. Yeah, I didn't want to go in that, <laughs> that room at all. I was really full up with the experience I'd gotten. Maybe it's just like eating a good meal and you don't want dessert or something, or the dessert doesn't look that good. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I really was full, <laughs> and I was ready to leave. Well... You know, these these um, images, they were in support of a public commission. I think the public library in Boston. Um, but he really threw himself into it. And I got the sense that it was his choice uh, to present Christianity as um, the source of civilization or something like that. I have to caution our listeners, we haven't read the catalog yet, so a lot of what I'm saying is speculation. But, you know, I did read on the wall that there is no record in his correspondence or any of his writings at all of any religious conviction or practice. So I got my own speculative hint in the very last room, which showed enlarged photographs of Sargent on his travels. And in one, he's on a boat next to the philosopher George Santayana. Now, this is interesting. Santayana was the teacher and beloved mentor of Wallace Stevens. Uh, he was born a Catholic, Santayana, um, and a, a philosopher and a very popular writer. He was skeptical of all the stories, dogma, and theology of the Christian church, yet he chose, as an old man, to live in a convent in Rome, cared for by the nuns. Wallace Stevens wrote a wonderful long poem about this uh, to an old philosopher in Rome. I think that 
Sargent, Stevens, and Santayana, all born in the 19th century, were rocked by the collapse of Christian faith in that period, but remained totally alive to the Christian passion for the other world, the hidden world behind the religious art that they loved. Maybe Sargent had an awareness of his mortality and recognizing the emotional lift, the life that can be created by religious art. And in a commission for a public library, he saw a chance to actually make some of his own. I mean, he couldn't just put this sort of thing up for sale in a London gallery, but he saw a way to creatively bring up the Spanish religious art that he loved in a public celebration of the humanities and learning. Well, Peter, that is a really good yeah. original thought. I really <laughs> okay. think so. It makes all kinds of sense that that's why he would have wanted to do it. Yeah. He wanted to do that. Yeah. Just what I'm trying Just to say. Just what you're saying. Yes, I'm trying yes. to say that. So whew, we must have worn you out, all of you guys, but mainly do go to the National Gallery. You've got almost three months, and you've got a chance to see this beautiful work, which was relegated to the past by the time it was done. And now it lives again with new things to speculate on. And when you go, you'll probably see so much that we've left out, too. You're not right. Partly we do this show for our own amusement and challenge. And art is a challenge, and we hope you can do the same. Just go and look, react, and make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned, folks. Coming up next on WOWDLP Tacoma Park. Hey, wait a minute. We should remind our listeners of your solo show. Uh, this month, all through October, at the Foundry Gallery in Washington, D.C. The title of the show is Memory is a Funny Thing. So stay tuned, folks. Coming up next on WOWDLP Tacoma Radio, this music from 10 a.m. until 1 p.m., Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other improvised music that is beyond categorization. No standards, no standard repertoire. On alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10, our friend Gail Barron's hosts Night Ride Home. This show features singer-songwriters, alternative, and indie bands. Just good songwriting. In the same time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures. DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. And on Wednesday mornings from 10 to noon, Borderlines, another show with a Joni Mitchell-themed song, No Border, No Lines. Like we say ourselves, it's essential to erase the boundaries and the hierarchies and set out beyond the borderlines. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.